Well, good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks. I am one of the elders here at Covenant Hope Church. Have you ever wondered or noticed that people tend to hear what they want to hear rather than exactly what was told to them, what was said to them? We all tend to do this, of course. Sociologists and psychologists have a fancy term for this. It's called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. That is the effect when we looked for evidence or facts to confirm or agree with something that we already believe to be true. And correspondingly, we ignore evidence that disagrees with what we believe to be true. So, for example, if you have a colleague at work that you like and one that you don't get along with, you're going to have the tendency to only hear good things or see good things about your friend and hear or see things about the friend that you don't get along with that are negative. Confirmation bias or this resistance to information that would change our minds is particularly true when it comes to faith. So we don't like to be proved wrong about the things that we believe to be true about God. And so we just selectively listen. Jesus' disciples had a bad case of confirmation bias. They expected the Messiah, the Messiah sent from God, would come and fulfill certain hopes and dreams about what they believed was good news for themselves. They believed it was only good news, only glory, only victory, no suffering, no hardship. So when Jesus began to speak about His suffering and death, they couldn't hear it. They, they didn't want to believe it so much so that they simply were confused. You know, when we read the Gospels and we read about the disciples not listening to Jesus, being confused when He says to them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead, it's easy for us to chuckle at them and think, why couldn't they understand Jesus? You said it so plainly, why didn't they get it? But you know what, we're, we're not so different, are we? Are you listening carefully to what God has to say to you? Or are you only confirming what you want to believe God wants to say to you? Let's pray and see what God would teach us in His Word this afternoon, what He would say to us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, would You give us ears to hear and eyes to see the real Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, last week we ended a series of sermons in the Old Testament book of Genesis that took us from the very first verse in the Bible up until a few verses into chapter 12 of Genesis. And we pushed the pause button. And we're going to go back to Genesis sometime in next year. But now, as of this afternoon, we're going to be fast-forwarding 2,000 years from the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to the life of Jesus of Nazareth. 
So this afternoon, we're going to pick back up in the middle of the gospel according to Mark. This is in the New Testament of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we have a few at the back, and uh, one of our ushers could uh, come and bring one of those to you. If you'll just raise your hand, they'll come up the aisles and hand one of those Bibles to you. Uh, We want you to be able to look at the Bible while I'm teaching from the Bible so that you can be sure that it's the Word of God that you're learning from and not just Brian Parks. Well, some of you may remember Mark opened his account of Jesus' life by quoting from the Old Testament, actually showing us that Jesus' life was somehow connected to what the Old Testament had spoken about and what it had promised. And then Mark almost immediately introduced us to a man named John. He was a man who was dressed like an Old Testament prophet, and his message was this, that someone more important than me is coming after me. Then we met Jesus. He was baptized by John, which is why we call him John the Baptist. The Spirit of God descended onto Jesus there at his baptism, and everyone who was there at the baptism heard God speak words of affirmation to Jesus. He said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then the rest of chapter 1, all the way up to chapter 8 and into 9, was a fast-paced account of Jesus' teaching and His ministry. He did amazing things. He called 12 disciples to follow Him and learn from Him. He traveled all around what was ancient Israel, and He healed countless sick people and lame people. He commanded demons to leave people who had been troubled by them. He calmed a storm at sea by simply speaking to it. He walked on the water. He fed thousands of people from just a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and He did that twice. But everywhere Jesus went, His teaching was the most important thing to Him, His teaching. And His main message was that the kingdom of God was close by, it was near, and that everyone should turn away from their sin and believe the good news about what God was doing right then and there. Now, Jesus taught and did everything with great authority, which meant that He clashed with the religious leaders. They didn't like Him, and as we made our way through chapters 1 through 8, the tension was building between Jesus and the religious leaders. And then in chapter 8, there came a crucial moment in his relationship with his disciples. You see, as Jesus' ministry had progressed, it seemed like his disciples were understanding Jesus less and less and less, rather than more and more and more. It's a strange thing. They were getting more and more confused when he taught. And so one day, Jesus asked them an all-important question. He turned to them and he said, who do you say that I am? It was a question of identity. And Peter, a leader among the disciples, got it right. You are the Christ, he said. Now, when he said Jesus is the Christ, what Peter was saying was that Jesus was the expected Messiah. He was the rescuer 
that throughout the Old Testament, God had promised to send in order to defeat Israel's enemies and lead the nation to glory and power. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, you're right. Now keep it to yourself. Then Jesus told all of his disciples something that absolutely stunned them. (laughs) He told them that he must suffer at the hands of the authorities, he would be killed by them, and then he would rise from the dead. They couldn't understand it, just did not compute. And so Peter, thinking that the Messiah of God is only a winner, (laughs) rebuked Jesus, essentially saying, Jesus, that's a bad plan for the Messiah. But Jesus turned around and rebuked him, even saying, get behind me, Satan. And he told Peter in front of all the other disciples in the crowd that you don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind only the things of man. Well, Jesus realized that that very moment was a crucial teaching moment, lest that idea spread throughout the disciples and the crowd that was there. And so he gathered all of them to himself, and he began to teach them. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 first, the very end of Mark chapter 8. We're going to get a running start at Mark chapter 9. So Mark chapter 8. And I want you to look at verse 34, 34 and 35 to begin with. This is what Jesus said to the crowd that he gathered to himself. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's kind of an upside down teaching. Jesus was saying to them, if you want to follow me, you've got to give up your life like I'm going to give up my life. That's what it means to follow me. And then he said, if you'll look at verse 38... For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see, Jesus was teaching here, how you respond to me in this life will determine how I respond to you when I come back in glory to judge the world. Let me say that one more time. How you respond to me in this life will determine how I respond to you when I come back in the future in glory to judge the earth. And lastly, Jesus made a strange promise. You see it there? It's actually verse 1 of chapter 9. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And there we are at the beginning of our passage for this afternoon. And we will now continue with the true story of Jesus and his ministry. Follow along with me as I read to you Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 2. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The big idea that I want you to see in this passage, chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, is this. Obey the glorious yet suffering Son of God. Obey the glorious, yet suffering Son of God. And the first point of the two points that I'm going to be teaching from this afternoon is this. Listen to the glorious Son of God. That's verses 2 through 8. Listen to the glorious Son of God. Look back up at verse 2 at the beginning of our passage. It's been six days since Jesus and His disciples had that amazing conversation about the cost of following Him. And now He takes just three of His disciples, Peter, James, and John. He had taken just those three into the house back in, I believe it was chapter 6, to raise a little girl who had died from the dead. And here he's taking these three disciples again up on a high mountain. And right there in front of them, it says, he was transfigured before them. Now, transfigured means that he was changed in appearance. His clothes, they started glowing. It was intensely bright white. He was shining. He was radiant, it says. Something otherworldly was happening to Jesus right there on that mountain. Now, we live in an age of electricity, and so the closest thing we can imagine to bright lights shining on someone, some bright lights that are pointed at people, maybe stars who are up on a stage and all the rest of the room is dark. But there's no electricity here. They're on top of a mountain. They're in the wilderness. There's no light shining on Jesus. Actually, it's shining from Jesus. Jesus is the light. And as if it wasn't strange enough, two other ancient people appear with the four of them, <laughs> Elijah and Moses, and they were speaking with Jesus. I suppose 
Peter and the others heard names being spoken. That's how they knew who these two men were. And so just in these four verses, there are so many connections and references to important events and people in the Old Testament. It's amazing. And let me pause for just a moment and encourage you to not avoid reading in the Old Testament. I know sometimes it can be more difficult to understand the culture, the context, the places, the names. But if you want to understand the New Testament, you must read the Old. Because the Bible is one big long story. And in order to understand what's really happening with Jesus, you need to understand, well, for example, Genesis 1 through 12, which we've been studying, and on throughout the rest of the Old Testament. First of all, if we look back in our passage, there's this six-day gap and the meeting on a mountain. And that should remind Mark's readers about the time that God rescued the Israelites from the Egyptians and brought them out into the wilderness to a mountain called Sinai. We read about it earlier in our service. It was from Exodus 24. And it's one of those most important moments in the history of the nation of Israel. And on Mount Sinai, God's presence was revealed to them in a bright and fiery cloud, a bright light. The Bible is clear that this is the glory of God that they had seen there back in Exodus. God's glory, if you you want a short definition of it, is this. It's His visible greatness. God's visible greatness. It's always displayed as bright light. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light. But here it's not just a cloud of bright light and fire. It's not a cloud of glory. It's Jesus Himself shining with the glory of God. And that's no mistake. Then the most important person that's featured in the event at Mount Sinai, other than God Himself, was Moses. And he's here. He's speaking with Jesus in this passage on the mountain. But why is Elijah the prophet there too? I mean, what does that mean? Well, if you knew your Old Testament, you would know that that very same mountain, Mount Sinai, was important in Elijah's life as well. Hundreds of years after the life of Moses. When Elijah was being chased by a wicked king and his wicked wife, Elijah ran to Mount Sinai and he went up on the mountain and he had a powerful encounter with God. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament, God met with his people, not just on Mount Sinai, but on other mountains as well. Mountains were known as places to meet with God. Moses and Elijah are there. Two of the greatest godly men of the Old Testament, both who lived hundreds of years before now, and now they've appeared right there in front of the disciples. Everything about this scene should remind the disciples that this is like the Mount Sinai experiences of the old. And so this is a very, very special encounter with God. So how do the disciples respond in this amazing moment? Well, rightly, they are terrified. That's what it says in verse 6. And they didn't know what to say. But that never stopped Peter from saying something. And so Peter says something. 
He says, Rabbi, which means master, which seems a little underwhelming considering Jesus is glowing in front of him. But he calls him Rabbi. He says, let's make three tents. Essentially, he says, one for each of you. Now, remember, Jesus spoke about coming in glory on the day of judgment just six days ago to Peter, James, and John and the rest of the disciples. And Peter is likely thinking of the last few verses of his Hebrew Bible. The New Testament wasn't written yet, and his Hebrew Bible ended in the book of Malachi with these words, and I'm going to read from Malachi, the fourth chapter, "'Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb,' that's another name for Sinai, "'for all Israel.'" Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And that's essentially the end of the Hebrew Bible. Now Moses was mentioned there in that passage. And Elijah is mentioned there as coming just before the day of the Lord dawns. Perhaps this is it, Peter's thinking. They're here and the Messiah's here. But Peter's interrupted. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. And a cloud overshadowed them, just like on Mount Sinai. And a voice came out of the cloud, just like on Mount Sinai. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, this reminds us of the beginning of Mark, of course, when God spoke at Jesus' baptism. Only there, at the beginning, God spoke to affirm Jesus. But the message here is not for Jesus. The message is for the disciples. It's for Peter, James, and John. And the command is, listen to Him. You know, this idea of listening to the one that God has sent, is actually an idea that's also embedded in the Old Testament as well. Moses himself wrote in Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, meaning your Israelite brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. So this was... This was actually a person that the Israelites were looking for, the prophet who would be like Moses, whom they were to listen to. In fact, in the book of John, he writes that the people who heard Jesus' teaching and saw his ministry wondered to themselves, could this be the prophet? They're speaking about that prophet from Deuteronomy 18. But here in this situation, God has interrupted, and He's clarified what's most important for them to learn here, that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. God has clothed Him with glory to show that He's from God, and not only that, He's clothed Him with glory to say that He is God, because the Bible says that God shares His glory with no one. Jesus is greater than Moses, who represents all of the law. Jesus is greater than Elijah, who represents all of the prophets. 
And when Jesus comes, the people and the places and the institutions of the Old Testament give way to the new. The lesser is giving way to the greater. So Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, you may see Jesus as humble and gentle and kind, and He's all those things. But do you see and think of Jesus as glorified and powerful? fearful and terrifying. The very same glory that caused the Israelites to cower in fear at Mount Sinai and beg for Moses to be the one to talk to God on their behalf. This is the very same glorious Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. This true account of Jesus glorified for just a moment is what Jesus is like right now. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And He's been given all authority and power and dominion. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. When you pray to Him, do you remember that if He were to enter the room right now at the back, at the back of this very room that we would be moved to either fall on our faces in worship or maybe run in terror or maybe some combination of both. Really, none of us have probably experienced anything like what it would be like if Jesus walked into the room, the glorified Jesus. There would be no need of lights in the room. There would be no need of a sun outside. His glory would consume us and overwhelm us. Right now, Jesus is glorious. Right now, Jesus is supreme. If you're not a Christian, I want you to hear what we believe about Jesus. It was actually in that statement, that article from our statement of faith that we read earlier out loud together. This is what we believe about Him, at least one part of it. We believe that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. He's fully man and He's fully God. So it's right for Him to to display the glory of God. And if you read the gospel accounts, one through eight, you see His humanity, of course. He, He cries, He sighs, He eats, He sleeps. He gets angry, actually. And if you listen and you look on Him carefully in His Word as well, you'll also see that He's fully God. His divinity was cloaked. It was veiled at this point in time. It was particularly veiled and cloaked to those who wouldn't believe. But here, He's revealed as glorious. And many years later, Peter would write about this very instance, this happening. He would write it in 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 16 and 17 and 18, he says, We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, 
This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He was and is glorious and perfect. He was and is all-powerful and our judge. And He is also the one and only beloved Son of the Father. Because of that unique role, we worship Jesus. We worship Him. Is that what you've been told about Jesus? Were those your impressions of Him based on what you'd heard about Jesus? If they're not, I beg of you, consider the eyewitness account that we're studying right here this afternoon. Each Christian ought to be able to explain to you what we believe about Jesus. But listen, you must read it for yourself in the Bible. Don't just watch YouTube videos. Don't just Google Jesus. You'll get lots of bad stuff that will show up on the screen. Read the Bible. These are the authorized biographies of Jesus. Read the Bible and find out for yourself. Jesus is being revealed here in this passage as the glorious Son of God, worthy to be worshipped above all. But you know what? There's actually still more to consider here. I mean, God has given these three privileged apostles a glimpse of the glory to come, and God the Father has charged them with a simple instruction. Listen to Him. And of course, we wonder to ourselves, why did he have to emphasize to Peter, James, and John, listen to Jesus? Well, because in chapter 8, Peter wasn't listening to Jesus. <laughs> I mean, in the immediate background of this episode is Peter's rebuke of Jesus one week ago. But God is showing Peter who he should be listening to rather than his own opinion about the Messiah and the plans for him. God the Father is endorsing Jesus as Lord and King. Jesus is God, the Father is saying here. And Peter must listen to Jesus' plans and commands, even if it sounds difficult and contrary to what he thinks is right. Jesus is the one who determines what's right, not man. Christian, are you listening to Jesus in His Word? When you read the Bible, do you read it with an eagerness to obey? Do you read it with an eagerness to understand, even if maybe it's teaching something that's uncomfortable for you? I wonder, do you want Him to be your glorious Messiah like Peter? But like Peter, you're resistant to give the time to listen to Him, to obey Him in the things that may lead down the road to suffering and hardship and difficulty? Let Jesus correct your thinking and direct your life every time you open the Bible. Maybe a great prayer to pray every time you open your Bible is, Lord, align my thinking and my heart with yours. You know, we can't live very long as faithful Christians if we simply just read the Bible selectively for what we want to see there. Those who have truly called on Jesus as Lord, they listen to Him. And if you're not listening to Him, what are you listening to? Or who are you listening to? 
Now, the point of verses 2 through 8 is listen to the glorious Son of God. That's what I told you when we first started in on point one. Listen to the glorious Son of God. But this preview of the glory to come with the Son of God was meant to get them to carefully listen to His words, but it didn't seem to get through to them yet. (laughs) And that brings us to our second point this afternoon. Follow the suffering Son of Man. Follow the suffering Son of Man. That's verses 9 through 13. This powerful encounter with the glorified Jesus is over then, over in a moment, and He begins to lead the three disciples down the mountain. They've gone up, now they're going down. And just like when Peter declared Him the Christ in chapter 8, Peter, excuse me, Jesus tells the three that they're not to tell anyone about what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. But the disciples, they couldn't understand still. I mean, they didn't know what he meant by rise from the dead. (laughs) They would have known, of course, that the Scriptures foretold that all people would rise from the dead at the day of judgment, but not the Messiah. The Messiah is the judge. They, they didn't have a category in their minds for even imagining a Messiah that dies. <laughs> and they, so instead of asking what Jesus meant by rise from the dead, <laughs> I guess they were too embarrassed to ask, they asked Him another question based on what they'd seen on the mountain. Look at verse 11. And they asked Him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now they've seen Elijah on the mountain. And since the end of their Hebrew Bibles declares that God will send Elijah before the day of the Lord and Jesus has been displayed in glory, the disciples seem to be asking, look, if it's written that Elijah must come first and he's been here just now, why have you been talking about suffering and death for the Messiah, Jesus? It just doesn't make sense. They're anxious for that final day. They're anxious for glory and victory. But Jesus has an answer for them and a question, a question for them to consider as well, especially in light of how unable they are to understand the idea of a suffering Messiah. Look at verse 12, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and now his question, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus is saying, It's true, Elijah does come first, and he will begin the restoration of all things. But the disciples have ignored other important scriptures in the Old Testament that foretell that the Son of Man will suffer. They're ignoring them. Specifically, they're ignoring scripture like, say, Isaiah 53, which speaks of a suffering servant of God. Verses like 53.3, which say, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Or maybe 53.7, which says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Jesus is saying that these verses are also about what the Messiah must face. 
They're also written in the Scripture as well. And to prove his point that the Messiah must suffer, he goes on in verse 13 to point out that the Elijah that God had sent had suffered already. Look at verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, Jesus is referring to John the Baptist as Elijah, the Elijah that God had already sent. In other words, God didn't send the Elijah of the Old Testament, but he sent John the Baptist as an Elijah-like prophet. John had worn the distinctive clothing, the exact same clothing that Elijah was described as having worn. John ministered in the same geographical area that Elijah ministered in. John was pursued by a wicked king and his wife, just like Elijah was pursued by a wicked king and his wife. And John called people to repentance and faith in God, just like Elijah did. John the Baptist was the Elijah figure that God had sent. But they also knew that John the Baptist had been imprisoned and executed. Mark recorded that in Mark chapter 6. We studied it last fall, last, excuse me, last spring. Now, despite the disciples thinking that their encounter with Elijah on the mountain was a sign that glory for all of God's people was just around the corner, Jesus corrects them and says that both the Elijah that God sent suffered and the Son of Man that God had sent must suffer before glory can come. Suffering first, glory last. And the disciples are still unwilling and unable to understand a Savior who would suffer. If you're not a Christian, do you find it hard to believe that God would plan for His Son, who was fully God, to suffer and die? Do you find that unbelievable? Does it seem embarrassing for God? Does it seem humiliating? for God? It is scandalous, but it was necessary. The suffering and the crucifixion of Jesus was absolutely necessary. In order for our sin against God to be forgiven, washed away, Jesus had to suffer and die. From the very beginning of creation, God had declared that to rebel against the Holy One who created life brought the sentence of death. And so death hung over the head of every man's head because all sinned against God in little ways and big ways, but always sinned. The price had to be paid. God's a God of justice. He keeps His word. But God is also a God of mercy and love. And so he planned a rescue mission of epic proportions, a rescue plan which he laid the groundwork for throughout the centuries and the millennia. He would pay the penalty for the suffering and death. He, excuse me, he would pay the penalty of suffering and death for sin that he himself required. 
And so Christ took on the form of a man and he lived a sinless life on earth so that when he eventually would suffer and die, it wouldn't be for his sin because he had none. No, it would be for the sins of man. His death would pay the penalty for us. Then and only then would God raise him from the dead to new life and into a state of glory. Death first for mankind's sin and then glory. That's why this embarrassment of a suffering Savior is our great hope. And it's yours too if you would follow Him. If you would follow Him by denying yourself, admitting your sin against God, Lose your life now, in other words. Live to serve Him now rather than your own goals and your own purposes in life in order to gain eternal life that will last forever. Suffer and die now to get everlasting glory and fulfillment later. Now, the Scripture that we read from Romans 8 Verses 16 and 17 sums it up like this. We are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. That's what Peter and the disciples were resisting. Suffer now, enter glory later. Will you resist it too? Does it seem like it's too high of a price to pay? Eventually, the disciples would understand. Eventually, they denied themselves, and they took up their cross, some of them literally. And if you understand it now, I urge you, don't wait. Follow Him now. Trust Him now. Live for Him now so that you can live with Him and for Him later. Brothers and sisters in Christ, remember that you follow a suffering Savior. Have you lost sight of what it takes to follow Christ? Do you find yourself grumbling about suffering that you're facing because you are following Him? To be with Jesus, to benefit from His cross, we must carry the cross too. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. Listen to Him. Jesus is the suffering Son of Man. Follow Him. Don't just hear what you want to hear from Jesus. Don't hold on to your confirmation bias. Listen and follow to the cross and then to glory. This afternoon we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of Jesus' ministry, before he was arrested and tortured and executed, there was a night. It was actually a very special night, the Passover night, that the Israelites were to celebrate every year, once a year. It was a celebration of how God had saved the entire nation of Israel out of Egypt. Jesus had gathered his disciples in a room, and they were to eat a special Passover meal that was to be celebrated every year when they celebrated Passover. And just as he did in Mark chapter 9, Jesus 
had told them that he would suffer many things. He told them that he would be killed, but they didn't understand. And now he told them one last time on that night. He told them that he would be shedding his blood for their salvation, that his life and his death were being offered up as a great gift to meet the greatest need of humanity. His blood would initiate a brand new covenant between God and people. His shed blood and His broken body. The Lord's Supper is the meal that Jesus commanded us to celebrate, reminding us of our covenant bond with Him and with one another as well as we follow Him together. Now, it's our custom to ask the members of Covenant Hope to stand and recite the church covenant together. If you're not a member here, we'd ask that you remain seated while the members of the church read the covenant aloud. And I want to encourage you to follow along and consider the obligations and privileges of living as a Christian in committed fellowship.